Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is December the 2nd, and so that means it's the second day of Advent 2019. And during the season of Advent, here at Faith Radio, we are reading a chapter of the Gospel of Luke each day. Uh, There are 24 chapters in Luke. There are 24 days between now and Christmas. And so here we go. Yesterday was day one of December, day one of Advent, and so chapter one of Luke, which means that today we're in chapter two. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the upper room. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
The child's mother and father marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineel, and of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of, of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, I'm not going to complete reading uh, chapter 2. I'm going to leave that up to you. It is the second day of Advent. We are reading a chapter a day of the Gospel of Luke. Won't you join us? Up next, Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can follow him on Twitter at Brandon M. Show. You can also find what he is writing and what we're talking about today at ChristianPost.com. Brandon, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Hey, can we start with the story of um, of Landon Hoffman? Because, first of all, it's oh, a good yes. news story, which is a nice way to start the season of Advent. Um, but it's also a Jesus story. So tell us... Uh, remind us who um, who Landon is. Obviously, for those listening in the Twin Cities, they're going to recognize his name immediately. But remind uh, the rest of our listeners who Landon Hoffman is, and then give us a give us an insight into this story. Landon Hoffman is a five year old child who earlier this year was thrown off the Mall of America balcony by a twenty four year old man, I believe, who had gone to the mall looking for someone to kill. It's a horrible, horrible story. So he picked up this little boy and threw him off the balcony. Boy was gravely injured, broke several bones, injured, just it was just terrible. Um, miraculously, however, he did not suffer any, you know, brain damage, or even though a lot of the doctors thought you know, he'd endured head trauma. But he's made a miraculous recovery. And today, I mean, after you know that this story's been in the news for a while and his recovery's been documented today he's giving credit for Jesus and angels who caught him uh and he's reportedly going around and telling people when they get hurt don't worry Jesus Jesus saved me and the angels caught me you're going to be okay too and he has such faith and i personally believe he has incredible destiny um his life was spared, and the man who attempted to kill him was sentenced to, I believe, almost 20 years in prison this summer for attempted murder. But it's just an amazing testimony to God's saving grace. I mean, it's it, this story just could have ended in so—I mean, it, I, it's, it's amazing that he wasn't killed, but this little five-year-old is continues to be on the mend and is walking around with no problem now. Yeah, it's it's also, uh, I just think that it's a wonderful testimony in terms of how Christians can speak into the reality of sin and the reality of pain. Obviously, what this 
um, individual chose to do to this boy um, is is an example of of sin, not only in our yeah. hearts, but the way it works itself out. And then this is a great, wonderful story, not only of physical redemption, but this family has, you know, they have forgiven this man. They have basically, yes. you know, leaving, left judgment into the hands of God um, and obviously our criminal justice system. Um, but I love some of these quotes that you have in here uh, drawn from their GoFundMe page, um, talking about Landon's knowledge that people are praying for him, that, you know, like every kid, he loves getting the cards in the mail. Um, but that he's giving, you know, he's he's really already becoming this great little comforter. He says to other people who get hurt, don't worry, I fell off a cliff, but angels caught me and Jesus loves me. I'm okay and you will That's be right. too. I just I just think that it's a um, is this such a good, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a great news. It's, so yeah, it's, a, it's a great news story and it's a good news story. Um, all right. So um, I know that uh, I took some of our time in reading the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke to get us started. So Let's go ahead and take our break now. When we come back, I want you to fill us in um, on the Chick-fil-A story, because you guys have several articles posted about that. And then I want to talk with you about this Mr. Rogers movie um, study guide that is posted, and it's free for people to download, because I I think it's just precious as well. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Brandon Showalter is here from the Christian Post. You can check it all out at ChristianPost.com. Okay, I am a little excited about the music for the next 25 days. Thank you, Paul Perot. Just keep those Christmas carols coming, man. I love that. Can do. Yeah. Hey, Brandon Showalter is with us from Christian Post. You can check it out at christianpost.com. Um, Brandon, what's your uh, over and under on the whole Chick-fil-A controversy? Well, it really was kind of a surprise to me uh, when I first heard the news that they were not going to be donating to the Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes anymore. I really was kind of surprised, and at first I wondered if maybe this wasn't some kind of um, legitimate restructuring of their philanthropic giving. But as more and more uh, you know, investigative research has come out, it's— um, my 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 own disappointment continues to deepen because uh, you know particularly the report that emerged not long ago that uh, the organization had given a very small donation but nevertheless a donation to the Southern Poverty Law Center which is a group that has uh, I mean I remember the day well back in 2012 when there was a you know, a guy who is now in jail for terrorism uh, attempted to shoot up the Family Research Council. I was just up the street having lunch when that occurred, and I remember being so traumatized by it. And that shooter ended up shooting a security guard in the arm, and that was all that happened. But he had an appsack full of Chick-fil-A sandwiches that he was going to smear in the faces of his victims, but thankfully he didn't succeed. To hear that they had donated to that group that had inspired this shooter um, because that's that's what emerged in the subsequent investigation of what he had done. That was pretty devastating to hear. You know, I would just say, you know, Christians can't put their hope in a business, and I really, I don't know all of the factors that have influenced them to uh, change their donations in that way. And if their if their goals are, as they now say, to focus on different issues, I don't know of a better organization. Uh, to do what they say they want to do than the Salvation Army, but uh, it's um, it was just disappointing, I have to say. 
So here's going to be my quick uh, Salvation Army. I, I'm not. I don't do advertising because this is non-commercial radio. But here is my non-commercial commercial for the Salvation Army. We here at Faith Radio are going to be partnering with the Salvation Army next week in our um, sort of end of the year uh, giving. You know, we always have a gap and. This is a time when Christians are particularly generous, and so we're mindful that listeners uh, want the opportunity at the end of the year to support the ministry. That's going to happen next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Um, and we're partnering with the Salvation Army so that I can't remember exactly all the details, but gifts of a certain level— the the person giving the gift is going to get a scarf. It's really cool. They're beautiful. They're gray. I already have one. Super lovely. But the Salvation Army um, is going to match that gift of giving um, with um, with a hat and gloves to a person in need across the country. And so I just want um, folks to know that we are partnering with the Salvation Army in that effort, and we're going to talk more about that next week in our year-end giving campaign. Um, so, Brandon, let's pivot and talk about this Mr. Rogers. I mean, it's not really the Mr. Rogers movie study guide, although that's what I'm calling it. It's a study guide for uh, a faith-based study guide for folks who go and see um, the Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood movie and then really want to take that opportunity to leverage this really excellent film for conversations with their family or others about Jesus. So talk with us about this, um, this official faith-based study guide. Well, it is a guide that is um, from the Discipleship Ministries of the United Methodist Church, where it is, as you say, a study guide for, it's a book, study guide book for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, this movie featuring Tom Hanks in the leading role. And it's uh, it's made in advance of the movie's release, but this was, this study guide is a sort of a discussion guide for the movie. And, you know, this is a um it's been helped along by other other movies. Study guides have been produced for other movies like Courageous and Fireproof, and it's uh, just there's resources for the film. Um, the goal of the guide, as I uh, my colleague who's reporting on this, uh, Michael Grabowski, was just uh, for viewers who go and see the movie, they learn how to process what they're feeling, understand the concept of forgiveness, talk about the hard stuff, uh, pursue reconciliation and practice spiritual disciplines. Um, it's, it's a great resource. To, Mr. Rogers, I think, was such an iconic um, just emblem of the kindness of Christ. And so the study guide is, I believe, just tailored along those same kinds of themes. Um, yeah, it's I, I've not yet seen the movie, but I'm hoping to catch it over Christmas if it's still in the theater. Okay, let me go ahead and say we watched it. We we went on opening night. It is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if part of it was this nostalgic reality of going back to my own childhood and recognizing, you know, I watched Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pace of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was so much slower. I mean, so much slower than everything on television today. And so um, you you almost have to settle in to that pace. Um, and that's a, that was an experience in and of itself. And then let me just say, Brandon, there's this one point in the movie where Tom Hanks is looking right at you as the viewer. And he has broken that, you know, whatever that is in, uh, you know, in drama, where instead of being on the stage with the other people, that actor is now with you. And he breaks, he breaks that plane at this one point, at this one really critical point in the film. And, um, and you sit in a full minute of silence while he's looking wow. at you. 
And you are really, you know, you are internally answering the question that he has asked the other person in the film. Um, but I got to tell you, it is it is probative. It is um, it's intense. And so I think that the fact that there's a study guide to go along with it be really helpful for people who want to engage in conversations and sometimes just need uh, need a resource to help them do that. So we're going to invite people to go to ChristianPost.com and click on the article about this Mr. Rogers movie study guide. And in that article is the link where you can go directly to um, the study guide and you can download it for free. I downloaded it. I printed it out. I have it. Um, and, you know, I just want to take this opportunity to recommend it as a free resource to others. All right, Brandon, what um, what else uh, do you have at ChristianPost.com that you feel like we need to know about today? Well, I think um, there's a the great um, article here about, you know, as I've covered these issues extensively and we've talked about them some, the propaganda continues to you know pour in about this awful medicalization of gender. Uh, and weeks ago, there was a big study uh, talking about how there's so many benefits of getting gender reassignment surgery. And I would urge all of your listeners to go and check out an article that I've reported on and just commented on at the public discourse by sociologist Mark Regnerus at the University of Texas, where he explains how this study purporting to show all kinds of benefits to you know, people who say that they are the opposite sex and they have you know, reassignment surgery, that their mental health was so much better purportedly after surgery. He goes through the study, and this guy has found coding errors and other similar studies that purport to show, you know, such great, great things within the world of LGBT that uh, scientists and media outlets are inflating the results of it, and he explains why. I urge everybody to read it. The title of this article in the public discourse um, is called New Data Shows Gender-Affirming Surgery Doesn't Really Improve Mental Health. So why are the studies authors saying it does? Uh, it's a must-read. Um, we as Christians have to be people of great discernment these days, and so we can't just believe all of the stuff that's in um, the media, unless, of course, you're, what, unless, of course, you're re- reading the Christian Post, because we value the truth. <laughs> but really, no, I would true. say no. all of your viewers, we, we got to cut through all the garbage and bring the gospel to bear on what's happening because it's only when we see through that lens that we're able to see with spiritual eyes. So, well, and that's, that's an what honest, I would just that, say. And that's an honest, um, that's an honest assessment. We do have to be critical curators of the mm-hmm. news that we do, uh, that we take in and the news that we repeat to others. So thank you as always for always being a reliable source of information at ChristianPost.com. Brandon Showalter, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Carmen. You guys can follow Brandon on Twitter, Brandon M. Show. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, many of us uh, were not really paying very close attention to the headline news over the last hmm, four, five, six, ten days. So we are going to turn return our attention to things happening inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Uh, we are going to talk about developments related to the impeachment proceedings, as well as something's happening at the U.S. Supreme Court. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When was the last time you and your family laughed so hard you couldn't control yourselves? 
Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Most of the time, teens are like an emotional time bomb. They walk around with a short fuse, just ready to explode. So if you don't want your home to feel like a minefield of tension, try finding ways to laugh just a little bit more. For example, ask everyone in your family to come to the dinner table with a joke to tell. Everybody needs a break from the pressures of life. So have fun, lighten up a bit, and quit making every conversation so serious. The old proverb is right. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at CarringtonAM. Welcome back, sir. Hello, hello. Hope you all had a good uh, Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Joy and joy. I don't know what my Advent greeting is. Joyous Advent, observant Advent. I'm going to have to come up with a word. You have you have a word for me on that? Uh, I actually know off the top of my head, but except uh, maybe anticipatory Advent. Uh, Nice. Anticipatory. Let me greet you with an anticipatory Advent, sir. It's kind of early in the morning to say anticipatory, but we could try it. Uh, uh, for me, for, for, for an academic, it's, it, it's uh, never too early for those words. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to lead off with this, recognizing that a lot of people, uh, including myself, have not been paying maybe super close attention to the news out of, um, out of Washington, D.C. over the past week. So I'm going to read this paragraph and then ask you to remind us who is Donald McGahn, um, why is he being subpoenaed and why does this uh, particular ruling matter? And then we'll get into maybe what the judge said. So here we go. The former White House counsel, Donald McGahn II, must testify before House impeachment investigators about Donald Trump's efforts to obstruct the Mueller inquiry, a judge ruled on Monday. So this is a week ago. Um, r- remind us again who Don McGahn is, what Democrats think he can uniquely contribute maybe to the impeachment inquiry, um, and then sort of what's at stake in this uh, in this ruling. <laughs> Right. And this this connects to all the the testimony that I'm sure at least some of the listeners are paying attention to before the holiday season, before the uh, House, uh, 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 certain House committees Uh, and who Don McGahn was. He was the basically the uh, the head lawyer for the president. Uh, he has since stepped down from that role, but he was the head lawyer for uh, most of the first part of this administration. And he was in many ways a very important witness for the Mueller report. Uh, much of what he said made it into the report. Some of the more, uh, uh, let's say, salacious things about maybe some of President Trump's reactions to the investigation came from him. So what what Democrats are wanting out of him is not that he had some specific knowledge of the Ukraine incident that is the center of the current inquiry. I think what they're looking for beyond partisan political points is looking at a, a is there a pattern of attempts to obstruct justice that they think they saw in the Mueller report and that may be pertinent to some of the actions that are going on with Ukraine. Um, the fact 
what happened was uh, the White House said, and Don McGahn agreed, I'm, uh, that he doesn't have to testify, that he can refuse to testify before the House committee. What uh, then happened was when uh, the House committee then took him to court basically saying, we have subpoenaed you to come and speak to us. We want a court order forcing you to come. And uh, a lower court, although it certainly will be appealed, actually agreed with congressional Democrats and said, you have to do so. And I think what this brings up, um, the opinion is very long, but what the opinion really comes down to is twofold. The line between presidential and congressional power, uh, how do you divide that in, in the separation of powers? but ultimately about the purposes of government, that we want both of these branches to serve the American people. And what does that look like when they both have their own interests, when they both say they're looking out for the American people? How, how do we parse that in these kinds of questions? So I think, I, I think there's more underneath it, but that's at least the basic outline. So one of the things that the judge says in this, uh, in this opinion, Judge Jackson writes, presidents are not kings. They do not have subjects bound by loyalty or blood whose destiny they are entitled to control. Presidents are not kings. When we talk about allegiance to the Constitution of the United States of America, and then we hear somebody say something like this, what what in history are they pointing back to? They're pointing back to, uh, well, I think in some ways it's pointing, uh, appealing against a monarch has been a American tradition since 1776. But I think what, what, what this judge is trying to point to is that uh, when the White House declares that it can keep all of its aides, who are government employees, from testifying, he is they, they, this judge is claiming that's basically saying that those officials serve the president only and serve him in whatever capacity he wants, no matter what. And what the judge is saying is no, uh, because ultimately the president serves the American people, which means the people that serve him ultimately serve the American people, which means that there are at least some limits to uh, uh, what the president can refuse to do and what his aides can refuse to do. And I think that's what's going on underneath this is is, is saying that ultimately uh, actually what happened is the decision kind of split. Uh, split the difference. Um, what it said is uh, uh, Don McGahn should testify, but he can invoke what's called executive privilege when he feels necessary, which means while uh, he might be able to testify to some things, it's fine if they say, well, there are national security issues or other things in the interest of the American people that uh, he could step back and say, I can't answer that question. Uh, but that's the underlying appeal to, to monarchy is we don't we, we ran away from King George III and we need to make sure that government officials serve the people, not their own interests or even their direct boss's interests. So I think that's a really um, helpful clarification. The other thing that has come up in conversations um, is the difference between Don McGahn, who was the chief White House counsel, and Rudy Giuliani, who is the president's personal attorney. Can you parse out for us how these people's roles are different in terms of who they're working for and therefore um, how protected their communications with the president might be? Yes, at least officially, the the difference is uh, Rudy Giuliani serves the president or serves Donald Trump, 
uh, Don McGahn serves the president of the United States, which means that uh, uh, the difference there is that there might be personal interests, financial interests attached merely to Donald Trump as human being. And those are what uh, Giuliani is supposed to directly represent. And uh, Don McGahn serves the office of the president, but that means serving the man in the office in his official capacity, in what he's doing as president of the United States. So brushing one's teeth is not a presidential action, but uh, signing uh, executive orders is. So that's the difference. And, 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 the, and it's a little hard in this instance because Rudy Giuliani has not been clear or even entirely professional in how and what he's doing. I think McGahn has. Um, but what that means is what is protected by what uh, uh, many listeners may know as attorney-client privilege depends upon what role the president was acting in and what interact, what way the, uh, the the attorney was acting in. And that's where what the judge said, again, is it's not that McGahn has to come and tell Congress anything they ask him. It's that actually question by question, issue by issue, we have to parse out what does Congress have a right to know because it's conducting an impeachment inquiry and needs resources to figure out whether it should impeach or not and what resources should be protected by the president's confidentiality so he can uh, carry out his office of the presidency. And they said, you can't answer that in a blanket way, one way or another. you got to get someone under oath and, and parse those out issue by issue. Okay, that is the best explanation uh, of these two individuals and their roles that I have heard anywhere. So thank you um, so much for offering that. Again, I'm talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're talking about things really going on inside the Beltway that affect all of us out here across the country. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He has actually weighed in on a decision that the court made prior to his serving on it. I found that fascinating. And then we're also going to talk about um, cases that the Supreme Court is now taking up. One of them, a religious freedom case that I think will be of particular interest to each and every one of us. And so that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen, continuing my conversation with Adam Carrington. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, we are pivoting now uh, to another branch of government, and that is the U.S. Supreme Court. Adam, tell us um, what Brett Kavanaugh has done and why it's interesting, and then something about the case in particular. Yes, on a surface level, it's a really technical thing. The Supreme Court releases a bunch of opinion or a bunch of case, a list of cases it's not going to take, and that's a lot of them. And but sometimes what will happen is they'll be accompanied by a very short opinion uh, stating either why by a justice saying why or why they didn't think they should take it. And one that actually uh, a two that actually got turned down was a rehearing of Gundy versus United States, a case that came up this past year. And then another case that was exactly like it about the exact same law. And and in, in that case, uh, um uh, Brett Kavanaugh did not participate, and uh, he was not on the court yet. And he weighed in to say that the major issue that's involved uh, should actually be taken up again. Uh, and that, and, and what's interesting about that is um, what this had to do with was uh, uh, actually a law about sex offenders. Uh, that really wasn't the main reason it was important. 
but what it had to do with is is uh, uh, the fact that there that a lot of our laws are not made by Congress anymore. It's made they're made by bureaucrats. They're made by the executive branch. And that that is a really big problem for freedom, that laws can kill you. Laws can be a way to give you the death penalty. They can be a way to imprison you. They can be a way to fine you. And that Congress is the one that is supposed to make those laws, the legislative branch. And that Congress has given up a lot of that power to bureaucrats, to the executive branch, and that that's a real big problem for our freedom. And uh, what the trying to take that back, trying to give that power back to the people's lawmakers is a doctrine called the non-delegation doctrine, saying Congress can't just give away its legislative power. And uh, what basically happened is that doctrine's been ignored for a long time. Uh, the Gundy case was almost basically split 4-4 in reasoning. Uh, and Kavanaugh basically weighed in and said, you know what? I'm game to relook at this. I'm game to start saying bureaucrats shouldn't be making the laws. The people's representatives should. And that that's a big issue for freedom in saying that uh, the people we vote for should be the ones determining what's legal or illegal. Okay. And then additionally, the Supreme Court, um, has like they, you know, they go through, I mean, you know this, I'm just reminding our listeners, they go through these processes where they make determinations about which, which cases uh, ha, that have been presented to them, they're actually going to hear. <clears throat> and they have taken up some cases recently that are, of, I think, going to be of interest to our listeners. Um, they are going to take up its first, their first second amendment case. So this is gun, gun rights, gun laws uh, in nearly a decade. And then they've also taken up some religious freedom cases. Tell us about these two uh well, both of these constellations of issues. Yeah, the the Second Amendment case they're actually hearing today uh, for, uh, in front of the, uh, the the arguments will be before the Supreme Court. And what's interesting is it, it, it's only been in 2008 that the court said the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun. They basically had left that undetermined judicially. And in 2010, they said that same rule applies to the states. Since then, there's been nothing. And the court basically has left a massive amount unanswered about what gun regulations are allowed, what are not allowed, how far does the right personally to own a gun extend, and uh, and and they've left it untouched for nearly a decade. This is the first case in a decade that they've actually taken up. It's a New York law, basically, that has to do with how expansively can you transport a gun outside of your own home uh, to other locations like shooting ranges and other places places. And uh, there is a chance that this case will get dismissed because, interestingly, New York basically, no, thinking they were going to lose the case, changed the law just a bit and then argued that the case was now moot, meaning there's no longer a dispute. But we'll see. The courts still said we want to hear this case. And if they do actually reach a conclusion on the actual law, it'll be the first major Second Amendment case in a while. Uh, the other is, that they just decided that they would hear is uh, Tanzan versus Tanver, and this has to do with a, a, a Muslim litigant uh, suing that he was wrongly treated by the FBI under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and many may know that uh, act from the Hobby Lobby case a few years ago, and it was passed to protect uh, people fr uh, from being uh, – 
unjustly imposed upon uh, by the government for their religious beliefs. And what's going to be interesting is, um, even though it is a, a, a Muslim litigant, this could have massive ramifications for uh, issues that weren't resolved in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, and a bunch of questions for Christians as far as to what extent can they get protections for their religious beliefs when it goes against the majority view of society, and even when it goes against the majority views of laws of certain states? So, uh, you know, we we we're, we're, we have a lot of unclarity in that realm too, uh, 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 of what protections we get from the law ba based on religious dissent, and so that's going to be a big case as well. All right, and then um, we got a couple of minutes left, so let's, uh, if, if you will, let's talk about what we see happening um, in the Democratic field, um, pivoting now back to a conversation about the, <clears throat> I guess, potential executive branch, right? Those who uh, have put their hat in the ring in terms of running for president on the Democratic side, they're, they're at least seeking the nomination of that party. We've really seen a surge of Pete Buttigieg, um, at least in Iowa, in terms of the polls, uh, ahead of Elizabeth Warren. Just talk with us about the differences in these two candidates and maybe the constituencies to whom they appeal. Right. And we're actually starting to get not too far from voting. Voting will actually be next month. So this will actually start to uh, matter in, in real time. Um, yes, uh, 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 Warren and Buttigieg uh, in some ways seem like they were appealing to similar parts of the Democratic electorate, uh, largely white, uh, upper middle class, highly educated, uh, liberal. But I, I think what you've seen with with uh, uh, Warren is she's fading because of the, uh, and we talked about this issue uh, in a previous uh, episode, um, her, her embracing of Medicare for all and some very uh, to the left issues that I think Buttigieg has been able to step in and, and counter. And I think what Buttigieg is, what, what's interesting about him is, in some ways, he reminds me of Beto O'Rourke when Beto ran for the Senate in Texas, where uh, a lot of uh, former Republicans or middling Republicans that are uh, in the suburbs that were uh, of not happy with President Trump are, are very attracted to his kind of candidacy. And it'll be very interesting if that constituency is really enough to do damage in the Democratic primary. But the polls certainly show that Democratic voters are giving him a very serious look. And Warren seems to be fading, I think, because she made a massive miscalculation on how far left she could go on some of these issues. So... Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, um, both I find pretty fascinating just in terms of their attempts to appeal to religious voters as well. I mean, they both view themselves as being animated by their faith. Uh, Pete Buttigieg out of his very liberal Episcopalian view of things. And I would say Elizabeth Warren out of, I mean, she she uses that language. Faith animates everything I do. Um, she kind of lifts up uh, Matthew 25 as the synopsis of the gospel that she's following. Um, and so I just it's curious to me because I do think that people of an evangelical and religious mindset, we are going to have to work out our own faith in order that we can listen well to the arguments that are being made by individuals like these in this next presidential cycle. I think so. And I think uh, especially Mayor Pete is very 
comfortable speaking in religious language and and see and it seems to have read the Bible with some closeness uh, and and thought about it in relation to his his life and even has pushed back when I or there's a Rolling Stone interview where they were asking shouldn't you just ignore those things in the public sphere and he said no you shouldn't and I think what that means is not that you should agree necessarily with his reading of the Bible or the way he approaches Scripture. Um, but that uh, don't scoff at it and don't don't deride it. Take it seriously. And if the Bible is as as I and I'm sure uh, 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 many listeners believe is the Word of God, then uh, in some ways I think we should be thankful that people are willing to engage us on the ground that we believe is our ultimate foundation, even if we don't necessarily, if not all of us, agree on exactly how that foundation is being interpreted and read. It's nice to be discussed on our own terms. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that would be the, the point that I would make as well. So, Adam, thank you so much. That's uh, well, well said. All right, we will be back with you in a couple of weeks. That's Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. You guys can find him on Twitter, Carrington AM. You can also find him at hillsdale.edu. We'll be right back. Okay, so I apologize. I cannot pull up the uh, text line. I know that uh, a listener has texted in this morning. And so, Paul, can you uh, can you share with us what well, it is? Well, she was just kind of confused. She f- thought Adam... Uh misspoke or something about he may have at one point yeah yeah anyway whether lawmakers should make laws or what you know instead of regular anyway all right so yes so uh so that is the conversation that is ongoing on capitol hill who actually makes the laws do bureaucrats make the laws or do lawmakers make the laws and if the lawmakers make the laws should they be delegating that authority to people who work as career bureaucrats that's going to ultimately be the question and brett kavanaugh thinks we should pick it back up and talk about it again which was the point of his opinion. All right, that's all we've got in this hour. We got a whole. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.